Welcome to Help from Future Self. Howdy, Archons. Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self, the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. I am Alex, also known as Scuzzy Gruen. I am your Keyforge friend, and I am joined, as always, by two of my very best Keyforge friends. We've got SC Steel. Hey, hey. And Boulevard Blake. Yo, what's going on, man? Not too much. Excited for this week's topic because it's one that I have shall we say, a slightly checkered history with. Um, if you were listening, a uh, regular listener to the podcast, and you go back a couple of episodes, you may recall that we were doing kind of a rundown of all of the houses that were leaving the game when Winds of Exchange comes out, at least for that set. And we sort of ended up doing it as a kind of an overview of what that that's, uh, that particular house's identity had been up till that point. And I think at the end of the final episode, we had decided, you know what, it would be fun to really do this with some of the other houses that are sticking around, really get an idea of what their identity has been like. And that kind of led us to this week's topic, because we're going to be talking about the dinos, that's right. The Saurians are on the discussion table today. Uh, each of us is going to be talking about the Saurian identity uh, vis-a-vis a specific set. But Blake, I believe you're going to give us kind of an overview of the Saurians. Yes, I, I will indeed do that. So the Saurians came in swinging. First off, I personally absolutely love this house for flavor because I am a huge fan of Jurassic Park. And then on top of that, I do love the thematic quality that Greek and Roman aspects can be brought into the game of Keyforge. Combined with these Saurian creatures, it just makes everything just so interesting, so flavorful, so fun. I do love it. So when Saurians came in, it can kind of came out the gate. Like it was a house that everyone wanted to play. They wanted to get decks with it. And then over time, we saw the evolution of Saurian, which we will go into further detail. And it was a very interesting evolution at that because they they did some things that I think people weren't expecting. They introduced the exalt mechanic, which we had never seen before. So this was the first time we were seeing the proposition of, guess what? You are now going to be putting a resource, something that is sought after, onto the table for your opponent to claim from you in some way but as a result you will get a benefit for doing something else that is quite powerful in return so this decision space of is it worth doing it started coming into play which we had never seen before in the game and that led to all sorts of fun decisions as well as powerful ones so without further ado i think we jump right into the inaugural set of the Saurian Republic, and that is Worlds Collide. I absolutely love the hubris of the Worlds Collide set of Saurians. These these guys really are, are how I imagine dragons would live among humans, like they're hoarding amber and political mm. power here. Um, but so this, this set had a lot of creatures in it and uh, second most were its actions. And, and almost all of these are memorable. If you think about it, they all had some sort of impact because between warding and exalting, they really mostly did new things. When when these guys actually first came out, I thought they were a bit complicated for my taste, but I, I fell in love with them the deeper the uh, interactions got. But if we, um, starting off with uh, some of these powerhouse creatures, these were really, really big creatures. Like so far, the biggest ones we had seen were 
let's say Brobnar and sometimes Sanctum with their uh, armor, but but these with the uh, just a single creature having in the teens of power wasn't something that we had seen before. So the Gargantodon was just a, a whole new beast at this point. And then the rest of the memorable creatures, they they really had something to do with manipulating Amber. So whether that was exulting so that you could do a really cool thing. I know everyone loved to, to see Philosophosaurus where you reap, you can look at the top three cards of your deck, archive one, add one to your hand and discard one. You, Your opponent put that down there, you had to get rid of it. But there, there were also other cards that actually added power to all of the cards or its own card or added power for each amber on it, like uh, Tribune Pompidus, or even better, could spend amber on it for keys. So there was a lot of new things happening in the creature space in Saurians, but right behind that, the actions. So they basically <sighs> followed the exact yep. <laughs> they followed the exact same lines so there were other than ineffective board wipes they basically ran the gamut of the the abilities that that they could pull off so the um damage that they could do the amber control that they had like my favorite the six samper uh, tribute combo where you could um, add Amber to a card and then uh, remove that creature from the board and take all of that Amber. It was just impressively powerful. Um, and then, so the the two others, the artifacts, there, there was a non-Amber key cheat, which this was kind of impressive, but also very much in the theme of Saurians. I really, really like the fact that you could cheat for a key without having to spend amber. But the the rest of the artifacts really manipulated or, or even became creatures. They were very creature-focused artifacts in this one. And uh, Would you the, say like the Golden Spiral is maybe one of the greatest artifacts that we have in the game to this day? I would. I think, I think Golden Spiral and Cincinnatus Rex combo is kind of broken and my super favorite, favorite <laughs> Saurian combo. I think that's why we don't see Cincinnatus Rex. I think I've noticed with FFG, when you get these really wild combos, we don't really see them again. Like they always seem to take out a part of these wild combos once they exist. It's like, okay, we don't want that to continue on. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the problem is that Cincinnatus Rex had a combination of one being extremely perhaps, you know, almost broken or perhaps even broken, but also was one of those time consuming ones where it basically makes the game into sit and watch your opponent rule of six, which is not good for the game, like any way you want to slice it. But uh, yeah. I agree with you, Sydney. It's a, it's a crazy cool combo that doesn't just go off. Like you actually have to kind of plan it and think it out a little bit while you're doing it. And it, it's you got to keep track of it. But I think it does have that, that issue. And that's the kind of thing that the designers seem very keen to avoid. So I will talk about this more later, but I ended my ABR game this week with a Cincinnatus Rex golden spiral combo. And I was trying to get the triumph key cheat off because it doesn't Ooh. matter how much Amber my opponent gets from me with this death of the Cincinnatus Rex, if I can get the triumph key cheat. And I was one Amber short, it was epic. Oh. Oh. But again, just like you guys said, it literally took about maybe 10 minutes and it was the my opponent won on the next turn so I didn't actually feel bad 
going through the motions because had I had I been able to pull it off, I would have won right there. And because I wasn't able to, my opponent won right there. So I wasn't delaying, I wasn't stall tacticking, but it just, it really did take forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things, and you know, I'm, I've been the the vocal dino hater, at least in the Worlds Collide era. I was known as yeah. The we vocal actually didn't let hater. Alex take Worlds Collide because we didn't need to give him a soapbox <laughs> any more than he's already had. <laughs> but I think one of the, the the issues from a design standpoint was that there were so many ways for the dinos to capture or get advantage from having amber on them via exaltation mechanics, golden spiral, uh, and various other things, and so many ways for that not to be a drawback. Like the obvious, the the value proposition with an exalt or with a capture is that your opponent gets that amber eventually. But there are so many ways to make that not a problem and in fact to make it a huge advantage in the set that, you know, and, you know, we can just name them off. Axiom of Grisk, you know, not even a thing that lets you abuse the amber, but that allows you to use the amber to protect your guys from being wiped off the board while your opponent isn't. Uh, Imperial Scutum that allows you to uh, not actually have to worry about that amber going away. Um, the the Keycheat Imperial Forge, uh, you know, same deal, allows you Perfectus to do that. Perfectus Ludo. Prefectus Ludo, like there's one after the other after the other, you know, and there's so many ways to capture Amber, you know, there's just tons of them. And so that was always my beef with it was I felt like they had basically taken a thing that's supposed to be a value proposition and made it way more value than it was drawback. Do you think Ludo should have maybe not been common? Like given all the other things that exist, because I mean, it is the cornerstone of, of like allowing that exalted Amber to to have some control or to provide a disruption where this has to be destroyed first before you can get the Ember. But ultimately, the player who has the Ludo has all the control because if you drop a Ludo and you already have a bunch of Exalted Ember, you can just then swing those and you know pop the pinatas where the Ember does not go to anyone. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that what should have maybe happened within the realm of Saurian as an uncommon, not even rare, but just uncommon, so it showed up a little bit less and it was more or less likely to be in multiples so that the other forms, like the Scutums, it could be more targeted and not a broad stroke. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I think that sort of would have gone a long way, but Prefectus isn't even like my top five, like, quick Keyforge cards from this set, from this era. Mm, I was going to okay. say, like, Ludo did not scare me half as much as Odoak did, because if Odoak came out, that is a must deal with. Whereas Ludo was, I just needed to change my strategy to not care about the exalting. Because Odoak yeah. is the start of of the true steel hate, isn't mm-hmm. it? Like that it happened yep. in this set where we really saw the steel hate, and Odoak because of the size compared to the other steel hates. Because the other one was in Logos in that upgrade where you couldn't steal. So depending on the creature, it wasn't as problematic. But I think Odoak really created that issue of okay, now what do I do? <laughs> it could shut right. down early era decks so easily. I want to uh, I, I want to also point out that low key like there's a lot of really great fun little combos. Um, I, I am absolutely a hater of tribute, but like <laughs> tribute exile is the first combo I ever saw in Worlds Collide, and it really was one of like the coolest things. I remember pointing that out to you when we opened up our first decks in in Vancouver at Play Blake, and just being like, because I, I saw the exile, and I was like, why would you ever do this? And then I saw tribute, and I was like, oh my god, this is incredible. But yeah. I'm also a really big fan of Centurion. Stenopolis 
with uh, with the Imperial Scutum because you could make just this monster creature with so much amber on him that was never going back to your opponent um, and that you could just continually pour amber onto uh, over and over and over, making him more and more powerful and uh, capturing more and more amber onto him via like the 8 million cards in the set that allow you to capture <laughs> amber. You know, beyond tribute, had city-state interest and city gates and so on and so forth. Like, there's just so many of them. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of like fun little things in here. I think the thing that just left a bad taste in my mouth was the fact that it felt like uh, there they there was a lot of very I hesitate to say cheap but you know didn't feel particularly sporting combos uh, in the set right we know how you feel Alex <laughs> <laughs> I think that also introducing two new houses for the first time they really wanted to make it feel like these new houses would be able to like pull their weight in these sets and be able to like come onto the scene and and live up to the expectations of the two houses that left so I, I think that that the dinosaurs did that in worlds collide yeah, definitely. Have you guys ever heard the rumor that um, originally there was uh, a lot of the cards that ended up being Saurian were actually Brobnar and that they nerfed Brobnar for being too powerful and folded a bunch of the good Brobnar cards into Saurian to really make them shine? And that's kind of why Brobnar sucked so much in Worlds Collide. I have no idea if there's any truth to this whatsoever. But uh, I mean, th- yeah, that's, I, I've never heard that before. But could, if you imagine Cincinnatus Rex... <laughs> in Brobnar, that actually makes sense because it's very fight oriented mm-hmm. and it would actually not have the potential to do the same things that you can do in Saurian. So that's that is kind of interesting. Yeah. I could get behind that theory. I feel this is like the um in Star Wars where it, people are like, you know, Jar Jar Binks is actually the Sith Lord. <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like it's that's the type of yes. theory. <laughs> <laughs> So when Mass Mutation comes out, I'm not going to call it a nerf, but I do think that the dominance of the Saurians is reduced somewhat. And there's a bunch of different ways in which that happens. For one thing, there's much less ways to abuse exalting and abuse capture. Like there's still ways to do it, but they're not quite so prevalent as previously. And I think one of the the really neat things about the set is that they kept a lot of really great iconic cards from the original Saurian run in Mass Mutation. Axiom of Grisk is still there. Uh, Ancient Power is still around. You can still do city-state interest and city gates. Um, As far as creatures go, you still have access to uh, Grimlockus Ducks. Um, The Library of Polosaurus is still around. Um, Ludo is still there. Thero Centurion is still around. Senator Brachus is still around. The the Pterodactyl, who I think is a super underperforming big creature, is is still (laughs) around. But, you know, they they didn't... And some really cool actions like Stomp and uh, Spoils of Battle are still around. Um, so, you know, I feel like they Spoils didn't of totally... Battles just came out in this one. Oh, really? I thought Spoils of Battle was in the previous set. My mistake. No. One way or the other, a Stomp is still around, and I love that because yeah. I think Stomp's Amazing. an awesome card. Um, but I, I really think they did an excellent job of not making you feel like, oh, we took away all the fun toys. They left you a lot of, like, the really cool cards from Sorian. Like, Axiom of Grisk is is got to be a top 10, or at least, if we're talking board clears, it's certainly top three for me. It does so mm-hmm. much work, and there's so many ways to, to work it to your advantage if you're clever and if you understand ways to work it. But... 
I really think that some cool pieces got added to the Saurian tool set when it came to mass mutation. For one thing, if we're talking about the mutation mechanic, they got one of the absolute best enhancement cards in the entire game with Amphora Captura, which of course Mm -hmm. spread out six uh, pips throughout your entire deck. That's really amazing. Um, In addition to that, you started to see a lot of really cool things um, for removal really became an emphasis in the set. Like, for example, Technosaurus, Umbrasaurus, uh, uh, Dreadbone Decimus all gave you good options for removal. Um, there's not a lot of like tr- super trash in in the uh, if we're talking about cards that we don't like, and there's some slight tweaks to some familiar cards, as is the mass mutation style, like Senator S- Shrix becoming Citizen Shrix, that throws a bit of a twist into the way that they operate that I really liked because mm-hmm. if we were talking earlier about ways that you could sort of abuse them, this makes this less so, but still creates sort of like you know, real value propositions, the way Exalt and Capture is kind of supposed to work. And that's one of the things that I really like about Saurians in Mass Mutation. Now, with all of that said, um, I think that you do run into the fact that at Common, there's a lot of cards that you don't want multiples of, and that's kind of a problem. Um, I've never really been able to get much use out of, like, Siren Horn, for example, and I always seem to pull decks that have, like, two or three Siren Horns in them, um, you know, Sagittarius Gaze is like hit or miss in terms of its value, and I always seem to get multiples of that. Um, Gladiodontis is a big creature, but as we all know, big creatures kind of don't move the needle in Keyforge. And, you know, I think that their their massive uh, creature, uh, Desilus, is actually kind of average. I don't think he's actually as good as uh, as the Logos or even the uh, the Niffle creature, despite having all really? his own. I generally speaking don't get a lot of value out of them in the decks that I've played them in. Um, I just opened one and I found it to be the cornerstone of the deck. Yeah, well, deck dependent as with all things, but mm. ultimately what it what it came down to for me. Oh, and I'll, I'll throw Cornikin uh, Octavia in there, which is like on paper a pretty good card with the action capture two at five one power and or five power one armor, but also like you seems like you always get three of them, and then you're just like ah, <laughs> they're they're kind of vanilla in practice in a way that doesn't really work for me. But looking at like the set overall, there's a nice balance between having some really cool cards. Um, having some neat creatures that have some cool powers, like talking about Charybdis and uh, uh, Scylla, who you know offer some individual repate or uh, fight hate. Neurotaurus, who does the same thing. All that removal that I mentioned earlier. A couple of ways that you can use Captured Amber to your advantage, um, like Faust the Great and so forth. Overall, so I just feel like uh, it's one of those uh, sets that that displays some pretty decent balance throughout and really builds that identity for the for the the Saurians. So you might not think of it as a nerf, but I think that their mechanic of the artifacts being monuments to X, where they have to have the artifact out to also be able to do either a really cool thing or even the just the power that they had in Worlds Collide, I think is was their way of saying, yeah, we we really made these a little bit too powerful in Worlds Collide and we're, we're still going to give you the benefit and the flavor, but we're going to make it a little bit harder for you to pull off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's legitimate. One card I absolutely love and I think is extremely underrated and on like first blush, you might not think much of it, is Blast from the Past. It's, I found one of my absolute most favorite removal cards for a number of reasons. Um, first being is you can essentially take some of those creatures you spoke about, Alex, like a Gladiodontus, like a Galeotops, or even a Pterodactyl, and you can just pitch it 
like discard it from your hand and then throw it into your archives and deal 12 damage, 15 damage, whatever it may be to a creature. Or if you have really high value creatures that get targeted and have been killed, you can then recur it and deal damage to something. So I find it such a fantastic spot of removal and recursion all at the same time. And I think it's just one of the most interestingly designed cards in mass mutations that that you're not going to just put at the top of your list of like, oh yeah, I want this in the deck. Yeah, that's that's a really great one. Also, I wanted to give a quick shout out to a card that I think is actually like pretty underrated, maybe because it just doesn't seem to show up a lot. But uh, High Priest Torvis is oh, heck yeah. real cool. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, Reap, you may exalt High Priest Torvis. If you do, after you resolve your next action card this turn, return to your hand instead of placing it on the discard pile. I mean, that's, that's card recursion right there in a really cool mm-hmm. way that actually has a real trade-off in terms of Torvis isn't that powerful. Like you have to be kind of assured that the possibility of your opponent getting one amber on their next turn is worth it. But also the ability to do like a cool action twice, it's right there. I love it. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about, I know this card came out in Worlds Collide, but its last appearance was in Mass Mutation. Can we talk about So Salt for a second here? Oh, yeah. Like, honestly, one of one of the, in my opinion, worst mm. cards in the whole game. The, the only time I think this card has any value is when you're playing Saurian for the first time and you're for sure not going to be using any of those creatures because you don't have any and it's just going to stop your opponent reaping next turn like aside from that i find it has like zero value and you really have to question whether you're going to play it or not totally. yeah if we're throwing cards under the bus i hate tertiate <laughs> oh i love that card really because i whole find thing with tertiate is that i find that i never get it when i don't have a board that i can't Fair. give up a bunch of one card that i don't like and I feel this goes into the the artifact why column is Curiosaurus because I feel it unnecessarily complicates the game. Interesting. Like, Legitimate. On, on TCO, it's much easier because everything's happening. Have you ever tried to play Curiosaurus IRL where you actually have to yourself start doing all the work of moving everything around and doing all this? Because sometimes think about when you're in the TCO automation and the amount of times you have to click because it's saying, okay, where's this going? Where's this going? And you have to start sequencing everything. I find it's just complicated for the sake of being complicated. Like it provides a really cool aspect if you can really master it. But anyone just like coming into the game, if this was like an experience you had to deal with, I feel it's just very complicated for the sake That's of the point. Yeah. So I guess we're going to move on to Dark Tidings now. Yeah, well, fill us in. Dark Tidings, Sorian for me, is really cool. I think it bridged the gap of decision space versus power for me. And it really like brought the essence of Sorian without the OP-ness that we may have felt in Worlds Collide. Because the mutant aspect that existed in mass mutation like there's there is a cornerstone of that that exists because when you get all the demo sources and all those sort of things there are a big chunk of cards that can appear in your deck that aren't really a part of Sorian, so to speak it's part of the set you know because every house has them and they all have the same abilities just in different forms depending on which one you get so with this i really 
liked, like right off the top, I'm going to just go right to the the meat and potatoes. Actually, the gravy. I'm going to go right to the gravy. So <laughs> I love Imperial Forge. It's one of my absolute favorite key cheats because it gives you the opportunity to put all of the risk with an instant game over reward. You can basically find a way to exalt and reap and then just let all that ember that's on pinata dinosaurs out there just suddenly not matter because you just won the game by forging a key. And the reason why I like it in this set so much is because Medicus Lacus at common can allow you to also spend it. So it makes it that much more potent. So you have the ability, unlike the previous sets when we've had ember on dinosaurs that can be spread being less common this one just comes you raise the tide and all that ember suddenly now is being spent and it makes that forge happen even more easily i absolutely love it it's one of my favorite things so that's the cornerstone of this set for me is having imperial forge and lacus but what we got in this set which i thought was really interesting was the tide with getting to exalt and use creatures based on Tide and other things that I thought was so interesting. And I'm, I'm of course, talking about um, Fasicus Felix. Such an interesting card. Play, fight, if the Tide is high, you may exalt a creature. And then you got the evil version, if the Tide is low, you may exalt a creature. So I felt like that really epitomized the evil twin aspect in a really nice way. And uh, you got to use everything. We also saw here come the introduction of this uh, really neat card in Decadence. Because you got to do, like, I, I love these Dark Tidings cards where you got to have the decision space of you can choose one, but you're not getting Ember. But generally, one is going to give you an Ember and the other one is going to let you do something else. And so, like, move one from a creature to another creature. So, like, Chant of Hubris, for example version and then you have exalt ready and use a friendly creature i just love the decision space that came with that so i thought it was really neat to have that exist and then of course um bury riches came so what are your thoughts on this card because this uh for those of you not familiar it's a playability action with no ember pip says if the tide is high move one ember from each creature to his controller's pool otherwise raise the tide um, it's a little less, um, a little more backfire possible than other, you know, if otherwise raised the tide cards, like every, every house has one. Um, this is one that can backfire on you. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it's, 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 th- th- there are going to be cases where you're going to just have to manually raise the tide to get the value out of it or discard it. I actually think this is the epitome of what Saurians should be because when they came out swinging and worlds collide, they really didn't have anything to temper them. And having to use the tide to get the crazy, incredible powers really does do that because yes, exalting was supposed to be a way for like a consequence of doing really cool things, but a good Saurian house in a deck won't have too many consequences or will benefit from having Amber on all of their creatures. So having to manipulate the tide to do really cool things and Bury Riches is a great example, is a great way to balance real actual consequences for, for doing really great things. I really like the way you said that, Sydney. Um, that that was a great way of of saying like it's a it's like a consequence and it actually tempers the power level. Like I thought that was that was a really nice way of putting it. And I also think that Bury Riches has sort of that like cleansing wave vibe in a way, except 
totally. if your opponent also has Ember, it's going to not work as well. And then in Dark Tidings, we saw Axiom of Grisk disappear for the first time. <laughs> and that was Pulling replaced. Out. Yeah, that was, <laughs> yes, exactly. And that was replaced with Crushing Charge, which is not as good, but also good because there's so few creatures that are four or lower power in Sorian. It says destroy each creature with power four or lower, gain one chain. The obvious caveat to that is Faust the Great falls into that. So sometimes that card is dead mm-hmm. if you have Faust because Faust is such a powerful card within the game now. It is the Edai of Saurians and it utilizes the trait of Saurians, which is exalting, to actually have that work that way. Like Edai uses archiving, which is the quintessential trait of Logo. So I think that's such an interesting card to have and I felt that it was really um, brought into its own within this set in particular. I have to ask, have either of you two successfully used Trojan Sauropod? It's an artifact. (laughs) It's an artifact that when you put it into play, it goes under your opponent's control and then they, they can use it as an Omni to gain three Amber. And then it says your opponent reveals their hand and puts puts each creature from it into play ready. And so, and then refills their hand. So I assume what that means is that you as the person who has, is the owner of the card whose deck it comes from would then get to reveal your hand and put each creature from it into play. So they're the ones who are basically risking you putting a lot of creatures into play, but then they're also gaining three Amber. I've never, I've never been able to, to get this right. It's a bad card. It is like it's it's nonsense. It's terrible. I think that <laughs> I almost one have wondered several times, like trying to like actually parse out how it was supposed to work. If this isn't a mistake, like they had like some earlier version of the text somehow made it onto the final version that got printed <laughs> because it is just a card that offers so little to the person playing it and so much to the person who gets it played. Uh, in under their control, I just hate it. It's probably the worst card ever printed, as far as I'm concerned. I think one of the major, pip. yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, no fair, true. I I think one of the issues that this card has is that in Dark Tidings, the average creature count per deck decreased, Ooh. so therefore it doesn't have the same thing. Like imagine this being in Worlds Collide, for example. Like if this existed in Worlds Collide and you had all those crazy creatures that come out, all your Star Alliance creatures, for example, that could suddenly come into play, like all those sort of things coming into effect, I feel it might, or even, I think even mass mutations, really, it would have been very powerful when there were higher creature counts. But because the average creature count in this set seems to be around the 16, 17 mark, it's just not going to hit the same as it will in other decks. Like, Can you imagine if you had like a house where you have 11 creatures out of your out of the 12 like that's not really a thing in dark tidings but that was a thing that existed in the previous two sets and then this card would be super powerful because you could have an all creature hand in which case yeah that's going to do a lot so um lastly i want to talk about some of the artifacts that came into play since we just went into the trojan sauropod one of the least likable cards in the game 
Uh, and we got Alstris Rostrum, which is a pretty neat card. Uh, artifact that says action, move one ember from a creature to another. Doesn't specify whether it's yours or your opponent's. And I noticed that these actually come in multiples, which is pretty neat for Saurian stuff, especially with Axiom of Gris not really playing in this set. Because uh, you remember that sometimes you wanted to put ember on your opponent's creature so that you could get it back. But then you're like, ah, but I use my Axiom, which means if I do that, then I can't destroy the creature. And you're like, ah... You know, and, and so I think this creates a really interesting proposition where you can now just throw everything over and then you have a card like Sensor Philo, which is it cannot be dealt damage by creatures with Ember on them. You just get these really interesting decisions to happen with that artifact. Um, moving on from that one, the other artifact that I absolutely really like for the decision space again is the first scroll. After a player forges a key, each creature they control captures one from its own own side because it's a rare so you don't see it that often but it's it's a way of scaling ember control based on the number of creatures so if they don't have a lot of creatures it won't work but if they have a lot of creatures then it's going to have them each capture one if they try and burst and then on your own side i mean you can plan where things like you have faust and you're going to forge a key and now you know your opponent's in check but guess what now you're going to capture the extra ember and raise your opponent's key cost. Maybe now they're not in check anymore. It's it's just really interesting, I think, the way that it can play off of, but it can obviously also backfire, which I feel like is the epitome of what Sorian is at the end of the day. You have these options to do things, but they can always backfire if you don't do it correctly. Yeah, and that's the way kind of I feel like they should play. Um, and kind of, you know, the, the, the source of my complaint uh, for, for Worlds Collide is always that the, the backfire part isn't there. But now that they've actually introduced that, Sorian's a really cool and interesting house to me because it's all about those value propositions. It's about thinking things through. It's about figuring out whether the risk is worth it. And sometimes it's about just taking a wild flyer of a risk, which is the kind of Keyforge player I am. You know, I, I oftentimes have said I'm less concerned about winning or losing than I am trying to make cool things happen. And when those things do happen and I do happen to win, amazing. But if I tried and it doesn't work out, well, whatever. Like it was just a game. I lost. So what? Doesn't matter. I don't care. And Sorian's amazing for that. Yeah. Sorian more than any other house feels to me like go big or go home. Yeah, totally. So what do you guys think would be interesting to see going forward with Saurians? I think the obvious answer for all of us, given what we've just said, is we want to see more value proposition cards. We want to see more possibilities for backfiring. We want to see the idea of, I'm going to make this decision knowing that there's a possibility that it might not work out in my favor, um, but I still want to have the option to do that. Um, is there anything else you want to see? I think for my part, I've always really liked Saurian removal. I think that they've always had, like, especially over the course of Mass Mutation and Dark Tidings, we've seen a lot of interesting Saurian removal cards. And I would like to see that continue because I think that their removal in exchange for things like Exalts or other things is 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 pretty interesting to me. Oh, this isn't specific to Winds of Exchange, but I kind of want to see Ward come back because that was something that just Saurians had a mastery of early on. And it seemed to just like disappear as cards that had them, it had the mechanic printed on them, just didn't get put into a future set. And I think that that's something that whether it can be manipulated in some way to make it less game breaking or or possibly just a, a fun additional couple mechanics mixed in. I think Ward was actually a staple of of Sorian that we lost. Mm. 
Interesting. Yeah, I I like that idea of getting Ward back. Um, also just thematically looking at Saurians, they have this great sense of opulence in all the card art and everything. And since we're going into this mercantile sort of aspect, I wonder if that is going to somehow play out in some way where maybe when if do something with Saurians, you get a lot in return. Like if you're doing like, I don't know how this is going to work, obviously, because we haven't seen anything really yet. But I, I'm curious to see if that becomes a thing. Like the the opulence of Saurians is represented within the trade-off that will happen. Mm. Ooh, I like that. I mean, certainly they would be a great house to have in the mix for uh, anything where you have the the you know sort of value propositions as a mechanic or as a mm-hmm. theme. Yeah, like I think exalting is going to really come to light in an interesting way in this next set. I just don't know how it's going to come, but I but I have a feeling it will be really important. And maybe spending ember on creatures as like a maybe a form of currency being a thing to get things. Ooh. So maybe like you can spend this and you get this, or maybe get a negative effect for spending the ember, but it's no longer on your creature. I think it could be uh, an interesting thing that we see potentially, because I don't know what else is going to exist. I don't know if the tide still exists. I doubt it will, but there could be something else. So I'm, I'm kind of like, there must be like a winds thing, something like a headwind or something like that might exist. And we're going to see different things happen. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to happen with Saurians, but I think we'll see more capture. Like I, I bet spoils of battle returns. That that I feel pretty confident. I feel like that card is is quite well designed, uh, especially because if your opponent has Ember on it, it also captures one. So it's uh, it's pretty neat. I, I kind of like that card for the decision space that it provides. Spending Amber from creatures is so far my favorite theory. Like I like the idea mm. that you're risking it dying and then the Amber goes to your opponent, but while you're accumulating it, you're you're actually building up like currency to be able to spend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be neat. Can't end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. This one's called Help, Help from, from, future, from self. future Self. Sydney, I think you've got something interesting for us this week. Well, thankfully, I keep getting so close to winning an ABR and just not making it that I always have (laughs) something to come here with. So um, this week was uh, Oubliette, and it was an incredible experience getting to play this. For some reason, somehow, I don't know, but I've like missed all opportunities to play Oubliette until this week. So now that I have it under my belt, I actually loved the format. And how this works is you bring two decks and you ban a house and your opponent does the same. So the banned house cannot be in either of your decks. So you obviously don't want to ban a house from one of the decks you're bringing, but if your decks include a house that your opponent banned, then you can't play that deck. And if you, if both your decks have it, then you lose the, um, the match. So you want to bring two decks with different houses in them. And I was actually like really worrying about what house to ban because I really thought that that should be the first thing that I picked. But to, to lighten my load a little bit, I actually went the opposite direction and I picked two of my favorite decks that didn't have any overlapping houses. And then I ended up picking my ban based on houses that were still available to ban outside of the two decks that I picked. So I did basically the lazy version. And I honestly think I might have fared better if I had done it the other way around and either picked one deck 
picked a band based on what that deck was weak against and then found a second deck to pick based on the houses that were left. Because what was actually really funny is my opponent and I went into the game with the, not only the exact same six houses, but each of our, both of our decks each had the same set of three houses. So we ended up playing a mirror match because our bands didn't matter. And we ended up of the pairs of decks picking the same three houses. So it was it was a really, really great game. And uh, like I, I mentioned earlier, I ended on a uh, Cincinnati Rex golden spiral combo uh, attempt at a win. And um, it was it was kind of epic. But I do think that had the ban been a bigger part of how I planned my decks, I think I might have actually fared better. Mm, interesting. I'm, I'm kind of with you. I, I When I did my Oubliette, I didn't consider the ban the way maybe I should have. But I, and since I defaulted to Logos being the fact that it's kind of like the easy pick because Logos is going to always provide general ammunition. But I now having played this, I definitely want to visit this format again because I think the decision of banning is much more nuanced and interesting than it can be just by going, oh, well, this is powerful in general. Like actually looking to the strengths slash weaknesses of your deck and choosing on that basis, I think is a much more interesting way to do it. And obviously the proper way and me being a noob at this format didn't approach <laughs> it as such, but yeah, it's, it's a really cool one. So did you pick your band house before you picked your two decks? Um, I can't Or did you pick remember. a deck and then the band or did you pick both decks and then the band? I think I went, uh, I looked at what decks I had available. I'm going to be honest, when I picked my Oubliette, there's some decks I didn't choose specifically because I wanted to save decks for other rounds. So I actually eliminated a lot of Same. my pool based on the fact that I was trying to save stuff for down the road. Totally. That's interesting. All right. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on The Crucible on Twitter and on Instagram. Sydney, where can they find you? I am, as always, SC Steel on TCO and Discord. And Blake, where can they find you? What have you got going on? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Boulevard Blake. That's B L V D Blake. And on Discord as well with the number sign 3840 behind that. And right now, I actually, today, as we were recording this, I also recorded the first episode of a new podcast, which some of you may find quite interesting. I've mentioned how I'm a lead playtester on a new game. That's a card game with uh, a dice component, which is really fun. Destiny fans out there may like this and Pokemon, Pokemon lovers. And uh, we recorded an episode where the creator of the game talked about actually being in the position to create a game from scratch, what decisions go into that, what inspired creating a new game. And I thought it was really interesting to be on the listening and interviewing side of that. So we have a new podcast coming out called Spirit Duels, and it's going to be dropping tomorrow, the day after you hear this on Tuesday. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. It's uh, Spirit Duels and hit me up if you want to be a part of this. I will definitely check out that podcast. All right. We'll be back at you next week. Can't say whether or not we're going to be talking about another house, but you know it's going to be all Keyforge the whole episode. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay forged.